But, uh, right, let's, let's just open in prayer and we'll get underway. Father, we just want to thank you, dear Lord. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to, to preach your word. Pray, dear God, that as we all hear, that our hearts and minds will be open, ready to hear the word of truth, and that your word will be that which is, uh, which is glorified, Father. We ask you to be with, with me, dear Father, as I preach, and, and, uh, and also be with all of us, dear Lord, that we might indeed rejoice in your word. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1776. The circumstances was war. It was war between two peoples. One was a great nation located on a small island. It was small in scope but great in stature. A people whose heritage could be traced to within a century of the time of Christ. The other, a people which could be considered almost their opposite. A people striving for nationhood a land large in scope, but relatively recent in history. But in this year, 1776, a document was put forward to the people of this young land, declaring to all, with complete clarity, their national separation from the country with whom they were currently at war, making clear, through the means of war, their desire for total independence. The document and what it represents is celebrated every year in the United States of America. It is celebrated on the anniversary of its approval and acceptance by Congress on the fourth day of July. It's known as Independence Day. This document has become embraced not only for what it says, but also for what resulted from embracing the words contained therein. The words were taken seriously, believed, and then acted upon. You see, there's certain words written in history that have an effect. They go out and they create a difference in lives of people, in lives of entire countries. Because words contain ideas. And those ideas, once embraced by people and once believed by people change a people. It's certainly said that words and the ideas they represent are the most powerful tools of history and are used by those skilled in them. The pen is indeed mightier than the sword. Why? Words are written once ideas are begotten. Those who are skilled, and this is a simple way of putting it, Those that are skilled in the use of words have the greatest ability to control events. Those who are not skilled in the use of words have the greatest potential to be controlled by those events. Do you understand? Put it another way. Dr. Oh, sorry, Professor Michael Bauman said, either you will master language or be mastered by those who do master language. He said, that's your choice. And he goes on and he says, how are you going to work in the service of someone called the word if you haven't mastered words? Makes sense, doesn't it? Friends, I've said this before and it's worth repeating. You live in a universe 
that was spoken into existence. You're the follower of one that was known as the Word in John 1.1. How are you going to be transformed by renewing your mind if you don't know how words work? Kids, I'm talking to you guys for your education. How are you going to be changed if you don't understand how words work when they have such an incredible effect in the lives of people all over the place? How are you, brethren, going to grow in the likeness of Christ if you don't take any of his words seriously? Or only some you take seriously? We come here on a weekly basis to learn from his word, don't we? We, we come here and we open the Word of God and, and that's why we're here. We come here that we can open the Scriptures and we can learn something. Something taught from our Lord. The Declaration of Independence changed the nation from a gathering of colonies to what would become one of the greatest nations on earth. But the Bible is the document that precedes it. It's that when, when it's taught... It, can change, it has changed the world because its teaching, its truth and its glorious message changes all who trust in what it says and apply it to their lives personally. We come here to be bathed in the truth of its words and to be transformed into the image of its creator, of its author. Isn't that why you're here? Isn't that why you're meant to be here? As Christians, we don't gather together for a social event, do we? I mean... I know there's churches out there that do do that. But do we do that when we come here? Do we, do we just get together, just bump into our friends and say hi and you know, look forward to the sermon being over so we can get on with just chatting with one another? We don't. I'm sure that most of you don't. We come here to learn something more about the Word of God. We should be as Peter when he was given the opportunity to go away in John 6.68 that he answered simply, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. As we study in the book of Romans, know of a certainty that these are parts of the words of eternal life and that no other singular letter has done so much to alter and shape the lives of people the world over in the last almost 2,000 years. We're going to be talking about the resurrection of the Lord today. If you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, please. We've already dealt with the conflict of the free will and the sovereignty of God found in the first verse. We identified who the gospel is in the second verse of chapter 1. We spoke of his coming in the flesh and the virgin birth of our Lord, a child born, a son given, the mighty God manifests in the flesh in the third verse. And now we deal with the declaration of the Son of God in the fourth verse of this incredible book. Resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one thing is true about this particular doctrine. It is certainly um, one of the foundations. It's the foundational doctrine within the scripture. If we don't have the resurrection of the Lord, we don't have a faith. We don't have anything worthy of holding on to. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. Paul goes on and he says, For if the dead rise not, 
then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. Then they also which have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life we have hope in Christ, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You know, it's a doctrine of the Bible that the Bible teaches really clearly that many people deny. And we're going to go through some of those little denials later and we're going to provide some answers and some proofs for those as well. But let's have a look at the verse. We're looking again at the beginning of the message of Paul um, in the first chapter. I'll start at chapter 1, we'll read through just to chapter 4, to verse 4, sorry. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. There's two things I want to bring out here. Two things particularly. One is, by what authority? What is the authority that's imbued here? The other is, by what means? What are the means? When we looked at, or we touched on the Declaration of Independence, there was an authority. Do you remember what the authority would have been? The authority was Congress. They accepted and they approved that declaration to go forward. What was the means that that declaration was put forward? means it was war, wasn't it? It was made very, very clear through the means of war that this nation decided that it wanted to be separate from, from England. We consider within the passage we've got a simple answer to these questions. Um, if you look at it in that verse, in verse 4, the de- um, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness. So it's the Spirit of Holiness that has the authority. And the means is by the resurrection from the dead. It's through these two fundamental areas that this declaration was made. But also note that it was made in a manner that commands to be accepted for all generations and not just for those that have personally witnessed it. Have a look at verse 6. In verse 6 it says, "...among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ." Paul's expecting the believers he's writing to to accept that which they too are, that they too are the called of Christ, the called of Jesus Christ. The reality of the resurrection of Christ in this case is a public declaration that's expected to be accepted. We're going to go into some reasons for that as well. One area we understand, when these people that were there at that time They saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead. They know that he was raised from the dead. They appeared to many of the people. But Jesus refers to those that have not seen and those that have believed, even though they haven't seen, as blessed. We we hear about Thomas and we speak about him as doubting Thomas. Why? Because he doubted. He didn't believe that Jesus had appeared to the disciples at that particular time. And Jesus suddenly appears and he says to Thomas, put your fingers here, thrust your hand here. And then he says to him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and believed. Why are we blessed? Because we've accepted Christ the only way that provides for eternal life. We've done it by faith. 
Men today have all the evidence in front of their eyes that of the truth of God. Not only that he exists, but that he works and he governs. That he's in control. You know that they believe that that's true. Because every time something goes wrong, who are they blaming? They're blaming something that they already know about God. Remember, I mean, when there's a catastrophe, whether there's aeroplanes flying into buildings and whether there's a, an earthquake or anything like that, he's the first one that a lot of people point to and say, if God exists, he wouldn't have let this happen. They're recognising his sovereignty. They're recognising his control over all events. The thing is, though, people hate God. So many people hate God. And Jesus said that. He said, The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify it that the words thereof are evil. People in general are at war with God and for all he stands for. They wanted his teachings out of the classrooms. That was done. They wanted the Bible out of classrooms. That was done as well. They wanted public prayer banned in schools. That was done. They wanted them out of science, out of philosophy, out of government, out of ethics, out of truth, out of our courtrooms. I asked a guy once, you know, these with respect to the laws, he honestly believed, and he was a teacher of law because he was teaching us when I was working for this particular company about how the law works. And, uh, and he believed honestly that law just comes from people. It comes from people. People make up the laws. What, what's the idea behind that is the, Lord's, the, the laws are going to change based on how people change. So God's out of that. There is no absolute as far as that's concerned. Out of our emergency server, services. Remember the Red Cross? It's also the Red Crescent. And since 2007, it's also the Red Crystal. Interesting, isn't that? Because why? Because they want the truth of what that organisation originally stood for watered down. They want God out of emergency services. We don't want to offend anybody. We want to save people, but not in the name of God, not in the name of Christ. So that had to go. That had to go. They also wanted God out of our marriages. Most marriages, and many marriages today, are done um, you know, without the Lord even mentioned or involved in there. You know, we've all been a part of, me- of weddings that are like that. They want him out of our families, they want him out of our funerals, they want him out of our personal lives, and now he's almost out of churches. So few churches today are even preaching, even mentioning the word or the name Jesus Christ. I'll speak about God and whatever he means to you, but as far as the identification of who he is, that's gone as well. Take one look at what was once one of the greatest nations on earth. Have a look at it today and consider what is becoming the result of being free of God. Have not this people created a new declaration? One perhaps that is independent from God now? You know, I don't know if Australia could ever, be, be, could ever have been considered a Christian nation. I'm not sure if it ever actually was. It's certainly one of the most secular nations on earth. That's without doubt. You, know, you speak to people about God and they're sort of looking at you really twisted and funny. God, what, what's, what are you talking about, God? And that I want to believe in any of that. What we've got here, though, we have a declaration to be the Son of God, that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God and that with power. The word declare appears 144 times in the Scriptures. 
One of the things that I love is I love looking at a particular word and going through the Word of God, going through the Bible and seeing exactly how has God used that word in Scripture. You know, Because how God has used that word in the Scripture is how I need to understand it. I don't need to understand it from a pagan perspective. I need to understand it from how God has intended it. It's the author's intention that provides us the meaning. You understand how that works? It's not the reader's response. I can't look at a word and then, you know, determine its meaning based on my presupposition. It doesn't work that way. That's not how you read stuff. How do you, you know, then it means something to me. All of a sudden the Bible becomes totally subjective. So when you go through, a concordance is really handy to have. Go through and see where that word is used in the scripture and see how God's used it. Turn to Genesis chapter, chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. And we'll just have a look at a couple of areas, or one particular area, on the word declare. In verse 24. Okay, in this particular chapter, if you remember, Pharaoh had a dream. He had a dream and he needed clarity on what that dream meant. He needed some understanding on what the dream meant. In verse 24, we actually see, oh, let's, what can we read? Let's say 22, start from 22. And he said, I saw in my dream and behold, seven ears came up in one stalk, full and good. And behold, seven ears withered, thin and blasted with the east wind sprang up after them, and the thin ears devoured the seven good ears. And I told this unto the magicians, but there was none that could declare it to me. He needed clarity. He needed understanding on what that actually meant. So declare refers to bringing something out clearly. Okay? In Exodus 9.16, the second occurrence of this word, the name of God is declared through all the earth. In Leviticus 23.44, the third occurrence... It's a public declaration of the feast of the Lord. Numbers 1.18, the fourth occurrence, is a declaration of pedigree or genealogy. In Deuteronomy 1.5, it's a declaration of the law. It's God pronouncing the law to his people, making it clear. When we have a look at that as well, have a look at you know, Psalm 19, where he says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. He says, Day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no, um, where, there, where his voice is not heard. There is no language where his voice is not heard. His line has gone out through all the earth. So he's making it clear. Declaration is to declare, to make something really clear. The words also used interestingly in Samson's riddles. You know with Samson, he had the riddle with the, with the lion and the beast. Uh, the word in there is also declare. It's to make clear, to understand. So everywhere we looked in the Bible, it came to making something clear, able to be perceived and understood. So Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, and that with power. By what authority? It was according to the Spirit of holiness. You know, this word according even got me a little bit, because I was trying to work out, he says according to the Spirit of holiness, is that, is that according to the opinion of the Spirit of holiness? I mean, are we, are we talking about something subjective here, or are we talking about something a little bit more absolute? Because, you know, when I'm looking at the word according, well, if something means something according to me, it might not mean that according to you. So I'm thinking of it as an opinion a lot of the time. But when you go through it, it turns up 810 times in the Bible. 
So I went through 810. No, I didn't. I didn't go through 810. I just went through a few of them. Let's touch on a couple of them here, just 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 to go through it and get a bit of an understanding of it. Turn to Genesis chapter 6, verse 22. So if you're in Genesis, we just want to look at the beginning, the middle, and the end to get a bit of an understanding on this according to. What is what does that mean? According to the spirit of holiness. Genesis 6.22 simply says, Thus did Noah according to all God commanded him, so did he. Noah did what he did in accordance with God's instruction. Something was going to happen. Something that's never happened before in the history of the world was going to rain. Imagine Noah, what's rain? They've never had rain up until that time. Now, God didn't just say it was going to rain. It was going to be a great flood. It was going to be enough to destroy the entire earth, every living thing on the earth. It was going to cover the waters of the entire earth. The fountains of the deep were going to break up and the heavens were going to open and the water was going to come down. Do you reckon that if you were getting instruction to build something that had never been built before for a purpose that has never been seen before, that you would probably take a little bit more care in doing things according to the instructions? I'd be doing things according to the instructions. doesn't matter whether I pitch the thing within or without. I'd think, oh, I only really needed to pitch it without, but hang on, this has never happened before. Better pitch it within as well, because that's what he said. We still don't understand exactly why he's pitched it within and without. Uh, the pitch is that level of tar that goes right around, the, right around the arc. We still don't understand exactly why that's been done. Not really, you know. And yet... It's according to all that he's commanded, in direct line with. Have a look at um, Psalm 109. Look at Psalm 109. Psalm 109, verse 29. The psalmist says, very simply, he says, Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to to thy mercy. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to thy mercy. Let me ask you, is God's mercy temporal? No. We know from other areas in Scripture that the mercy of God endureth forever. Save me according to thy mercy. If I'm going to be saved, I want to be saved according to his mercy. If we're saved according to his mercy, then we're saved indeed. We're saved perfectly and that for all eternity. If you've trusted Christ to save you, you will be saved for all eternity according to his mercy. And his mercy endureth forever. That's a really important principle to understand. So it's again in direct line with, in direct comparison with. The last one I want you to turn to. Turn to Revelation, the back of the book now. Second last chapter, chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12 we're going to look at. Again, just one verse. Scripture says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. This particular judgment is a judgment that you don't want to be at. This judgment, the only people that are at this judgment are the damned, are those that are destined to have to give an account for themselves according to their works. They don't have the blood of Christ covering them. They haven't been saved according to his mercy because they've never wanted that to begin with. We know that that's true because a little bit earlier we understand that they're already away. In verse 6, we see that uh, verse 5 tells us of the first resurrection when the rest of the dead, the context is these dead are those that are dead in Christ, are known as blessed and holy. Verse six, and, and verse six, in verse 6, therefore the only ones left are those who will face the final judgment. And they're going to be dead judged according to their works. Guys, if I was there and I was judged according to my works, there's no question why there has to be books opened. Notice it's books in the plural. I think I would need more than one book to be judged according to my works. So those that are there are going to be judged in perfect accordance with their works. You recognise something really interesting that you get to a point in your life when you're doing stuff that you shouldn't be doing that you put away your conscience, yeah? You put it away, you, you squash it, you get it to the point where it's nice and small and manageable, that maybe you can open up a drawer and stick it in the drawer and close it and not see it anymore. That's your conscience, right? That's your conscience, that's what you do with it. At this particular time, at this time of judgement... Your conscience is going to be fully informed. It will be fully informed. It'll be taken out of the drawer, it'll be opened up, and it'll be and it will fill books. And you'll be judged according to the works. So the word according here is in direct accord with, in direct line with, in parallel with. So when Jesus Christ is declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, it's according to God Himself. That he is declared to be the Son of God. And we know it has to be that as well, because the word according, if it means that, isn't it the Spirit of God that gave us the Word of God? The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. If the Spirit of God actually gave us the Word of God, the Word of God has to be according to God Himself, it has to line up with His nature. But there's something else. We're also saved by the Spirit of God, aren't we? We're saved by the Spirit of God. It's the same one that actually said that we were once dead in trespasses and sins. So the fact that Jesus Christ has declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, it teaches really simply that it's in direct line with who God is. God is making this declaration. He's making it to all people. What are the means? Have a look at that verse again, verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That's the means, the resurrection from the dead. That God's revealed through the Spirit some time prior. That's interesting. You know that God's actually revealed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God earlier than this as well. He's revealed to it... um, when he asked Peter, you know, who do men say that I am? And Peter responded, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. 
So we see that revealed. We see him revealed that way. God's also spoken clearly from heaven. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He said that a few times. So that's already been revealed from heaven. And it's possible to also deduce who Jesus Christ is by everything that he's done, that he is the son of God. We even see the devils even responding. Thou art the Christ. You know, thou art the Christ. But in this passage, we've got him declared to be the son of God. It's a lot more formal here. It's not a personal revelation. This is being declared to be the Son of God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Something really important here that I want you to, I want you to think about. What we're speaking about is the Gospel. The Gospel is found in those first four verses of the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. And the gospel of God is concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. One thing I want you to consider for a second is the gospel... I haven't seen the gospel preached in the book of Acts or anywhere in the scripture where the resurrection isn't foremost as part of that gospel. It forms it. It's part of the gospel. We can't get rid of the resurrection. The resurrection has to be there. And we see that happening with Paul. Have a look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory that if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. His message on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, it's interesting because he says, Then certain philosophers and the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? And others some, he he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange... God's because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. The resurrection was foremost in the preaching of Paul. Verse 31 to 34 in Acts 17. Paul says this. He says, Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. He's preaching the resurrection of the dead. It's not a comfortable thing to preach on. Particularly in a pagan nation that has only ever understood that if anybody, if there is any afterlife, it's a spiritual afterlife. It's not one that is in a resurrected physical body. He didn't stop there. In Acts chapter 23, when he was brought before the council and the high priest, he said, the Bible says, But when Paul perceived that the one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called into question. This is what he's been preaching. He's been preaching that really, really clearly. 
The same thing happened again when he went and saw the governor in Acts chapter 24. And again when he seen King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. He's preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts 26 he said that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and shew light unto, unto the people and to the Gentiles. But it's not just Paul. Peter was doing the same thing in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. And again in Acts chapter 3, upsetting the rulers at that time. And again in Acts chapter 4 and again in Acts chapter 5, where, he's charged, where the rulers actually charged him not to preach about the resurrection. And again when he shared in the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the gospel seems never to be preached apart from the resurrection. It's interesting. It's interesting. Why? Because the Bible says, If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are yet in our sins. When Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room, Luke chapter 24 if you're handy there, turn to Luke chapter 24. Because what, one thing that we want to see is what was, what was the nature of his resurrection? What, was, what did he look like? Was it just a spirit? Was it a physical body? And it is important to understand that because so much of the teaching at that time was that it was always a spiritual afterlife. In 2436 to 41... Scripture says, And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he shewed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? It's my kind of guy. It's amazing. Every time he shows up, he, he wants to eat. You know? He's either cooking fish on the beach or he's, you know, he always wants to eat. He likes to eat. And here he is in his resurrected body and he wants to eat. We don't see any spirits wanting to eat. You sort of wonder where the food's going to go. There's something very unique about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn of the dead, the Bible says. The firstborn. And remember what we were talking about before, that if Christ is not raised, then the dead rise not. In other words, we will also be raised in the likeness of his glorious body. We're going to be receiving the same body as the Lord Jesus Christ, or at least very similar to. The Bible says we don't... Um, well, we look in the glass darkly, doesn't it? But when we see him... We will see him as he is. Why? Because we will be like him. We're going to be receiving resurrected bodies. Bodies that work. Bodies that work. I think of my brother Kest, you know. And he's got polio and his wife with MS and daughter. Mate, they're looking forward to these bodies. Bodies that won't break down, bodies that won't get sick, bodies that will never die again. But understand something really important, they're going to have bodies fit for the purpose. The Bible actually talks about the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. Ah, hang on a second. It's not just the just, those that have been justified by the blood of Christ that get resurrected bodies. 
also the unjust. The unjust are also going to receive resurrected bodies. But let me tell you something. There is going to be a vast distinction between one and the other. One will be suited perfectly for heaven and eternity and glory. The other would be directly suited towards damnation and hellfire for all eternity. Each resurrected body is going to be fit for its purpose. The denial of the resurrection. This is a really interesting section and it's worth paying attention to. The resurrection is something that is denied. It is fervently denied. If they can deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then effectively, Christian, your faith is in vain. Is our faith in vain? I'm going to talk about just three of them real quick. The swoon theory. Have anybody ever heard of the swoon theory? It's the idea that Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, he didn't actually die. He fainted. He swooned on the cross. He didn't physically die. He swooned. You know, all these ideas, these aren't new. Now, I guarantee you, every Easter and every Christmas, you're going to be getting some ideas that are going to be flashed on the news or on television, or there's going to be books written or something like that. It happens to be every Christmas and every Easter of someone coming up with an idea. None of them are new. Swoon theory is not new. We've got a few problems with the swoon theory. And the fundamental one was, what was Jesus like? What was his state? Remember? He was scourged prior to the cross. I don't want to go into too much detail because it makes me sick. But the scourging that was done was with bones and they were on the, end of a, on the end of the whip and there was a lot of flesh that was torn off his body. He lost a lot of blood before he went to the cross. The nature of the cross. nature of the cross itself is a tool for execution. The cross wasn't something that was just torture. It was for execution. And the Romans were very, very, very good at execution. His way of breathing couldn't be done unless he actually pulled himself up on those nails to be able to inhale. Okay? He needed to be able to inhale or exhale. Can't remember which one of the was one or the other. But those nails were put through his feet, through the bone and the heel, and into the timber beneath, so he can actually stay there on the cross. It was there to actually keep him there. Chances are he didn't get tied up. These Romans were butchers and they would have put the nails directly into the wrists where he could hang properly. Okay? They, don't, they don't do things you know, complicated. They do things very simple. A couple of nails, that's it. He's done. He's there. They leave him there. But it was used as a tool for execution. Now, something happened during that particular time also that they needed to put a spear into his side just to make sure. They were going to break the legs. They broke the legs of the other two. They didn't break his legs. They actually pierced his, his side, just underneath the heart. And it's interesting because um, John talks about an area in the heart where it was pierced and both blood and water came out. That's interesting. Blood and water came out? Well, it's only modern medicine that's actually recognised that he pierced an area called the, the pericardium where there's a mixture of blood and water. It would have been a lot more water than blood and that would have been what was seen. Now... So, he's gone through the scourging, he's gone through the execution, they pierced his side. The professional soldiers recognised that he would have been dead, understand it was their job to make sure he's dead, because if he ain't dead and he gets up and walks around, then they're going to be dead. Um, So they had a real responsibility to make sure that this execution was done properly. Um, No one gets off alive, in other words. 
His burial. His burial was in a tomb. The whole method of burying him. People would have been handling him and then put him in the tomb. The tomb was sealed. It was sealed for three days. He had no food, no water. And then it was sealed with a very heavy rock, a heavy stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. And, of course, we also got the empty tomb because everyone discovered that the tomb was empty. He also would have had a seven-kilometre walk to his friend's place. You you, You need to understand he wasn't in a really good condition to move, let alone walk. Okay. Um... And then the question would have to be asked, what sort of resurrection body is this? The swoon theory never held water, and yet it's still propagated today. The other one is that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Well, the answer we've got is an empty tomb. The other one we have is the witnesses of infallible proofs in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. We've got 500 witnesses have seen this event in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. 500 witnesses had seen this. Then we've got the writings of the Gospels and Epistles all claiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand something here. This claim of the resurrection of Christ, the Gospels were written at the time when the eyewitnesses were still alive. Still alive. All the people that had seen the Lord Jesus Christ were alive at the time of the writing of the Gospels and all the Epistles. So there was plenty of people there, in other words, to be able to refute it if they were wrong. The other one is they stole his body and made up the story. I like this one. Have a look at Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27. Do you reckon they had a bit of an idea that this might happen? Pharisees certainly thought it might happen. Matthew 27 and go to verse 62. Scripture says, Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch, go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. These people knew or or understood what Jesus taught, didn't they? They understood that Jesus said, In the third day he will rise again. The disciples understood that, although they didn't really want to believe it because they honestly thought, wasn't he supposed to be staying forever? So they didn't want to believe it. But look at what happened. They then asked to get a guard set in front of that tomb. Just in case, just in case. These guards would have set it. They already planned for it and yet here we find the idea that they stole his body and then made up the whole story about the resurrection. Wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened, not with a guard already set. And the idea is also as old as the New Testament is. Go forward to Matthew 28. Have a look at verse 15. I'm sorry, verse uh, verse 11. It says, And now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and shewed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave them large money unto the soldiers saying, Say ye, 
His disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept, while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. May I say it is also commonly reported among the heathen right up until this day. They slept, they reckon. But they would secure him because understand that if, they, if Jesus had been able to get out there or the disciples came in to take them, then uh, their lives were also in jeopardy. The history of the followers of dead leaders prove otherwise. Oh, that's another one. Acts chapter 5. Have a look at Acts chapter 5. Gamaliel's there. I was thinking about this last night. And Gamaliel actually said something really interesting. Acts chapter 5, verse 34. And it says, Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had a reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space and said unto them, Ye men of Israel... Take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed." Now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. Isn't that interesting? So the history actually teaches otherwise. The history teaches that when someone rises up and claims to be a leader of some kind, the followers follow them until they die. Once they die, the followers are dispersed. What happened when Jesus was put on the cross? What happened when he was actually taken prisoner? Do you remember? What happened to all his followers? All the disciples? They all dispersed. Remember? The Bible says if the sheep is slain, shepherd be slain, the sheep will scatter. And that's exactly what happened. Now... If the body was stolen and they made up the whole story, it doesn't make any sense. Because if you think about the nature of of Peter, you think about Thomas, how upset Thomas was that Jesus was slain. He didn't even go to the first meeting, he wasn't even there. And he only went there because they said, oh, the Lord's risen. But he was there. Peter wanted to go fishing. They all ended up going fishing. They wouldn't have been very happy thing is they followed the Lord Jesus Christ they followed the Lord Jesus Christ completely to the point where Peter denied him three times and when he was taken captive he denied him three times because he understood Jesus Christ to be who he said he was the Christ the son of the living God but when he was taken captive you can only imagine what Peter would have been going through at that particular time the confusion not wanting to be involved in that and yet We have the Christian faith propagated from that point forward over the last 2,000 years. And we're here as a result of it because of the passion of these men. 
But it wasn't just the passion of these men. These men, if they had stolen the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and they lied, I wonder how much money they made out of that. Reckon they made a lot of money out of it? And they got really, really wealthy. I mean, because most people, when they lie, they get really wealthy out of those lies, don't they? I mean, you don't, take, you don't lie in order to get condemned, do you? I mean, would you lie? And someone said, tell the truth or else we'll kill you. Are you going to tell the truth? Understand, you know it's a lie. Now, we see Islam spread today and people putting their lives on the line, but they don't know that it's a lie. They don't know. We're talking about the disciples here. Every single one of them, except for John, that we're aware of, was slain because of what they believed. They gave up everything for what they knew to be a lie. What was then understood later on, it was recognised that no one would willingly die for what they know to be a lie. So this whole idea that they made up the story is also a furphy and quite a big one. I'm going to finish with this last section. Um, the legal departments and people that are involved in law and justice really gather a lot of evidence, don't they? I mean, when they're, when they're trying to put a, case, a particular case forward, whether it's um, one that's going to be prosecuting someone that's done a crime or whether it's going to be you know, trying to get somebody off that's been claimed to do a, a crime, they gather all the evidence, don't they? We've got a number of lawyers here and I want you to think about it and have a listen to what they said about the resurrection. Lord Darling was a former Chief Justice in England, asserts, In its favour, as a living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. A verdict other than the resurrection story being true. John Singleton Copley... Um, In 1863, he's recognised as one of the greatest legal minds in British history. He was Solicitor General of the the British Government, Attorney General of Great Britain, three times the High Chancellor of England and elected High Steward of the University of Cambridge. He challenges, I know pretty well what evidence is. I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. Hugo Grotius was a noted jurist and scholar whose works are the fundamental importance in international law, whose works are of fundamental importance in international law. According to the Encyclopaedia Britannica, he wrote Latin elegies, uh, poems, at the age of eight, and entered the leading university at the age of 11. And he considered, he was considered the father of international law. He wrote The Truth of the Christian Religion in 1627 in which he legally defended the historical fact of the resurrection in that book. J.N.D. Anderson was said to be a scholar of international repute, eminently qualified to deal with the subject of evidence. Until 1970, he was one of the world's leading authorities on Muslim law, Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of London, Chairman of the Department of Oriental Law at the School of, of Oriental and African Studies, and Director of the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies, at the University of London. In Anderson's text, Christianity, the Witness of History, he supplies the standard evidences for the resurrection and asks, how then can the fact of the resurrection be denied? Anderson further emphasises, lastly, it can be asserted with confidence that men and women disbelieve the Easter story, not because of the evidence, but in spite of it. 
Interesting. Speaks about the heart of man and their willing rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and God himself. Sir Edward Clark, he was a king's counsel, he said this, As a lawyer I have made a prolonged study of the evidences of the events of the first Easter day. To me the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence. And a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class. And as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as a testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. Facts they were able to substantiate. They gave their lives for this and they knew it to be true. Otherwise, they would have known it to be a lie. Owen H. Linton was a Washington, D.C., this last lawyer here, who argued cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. In A Lawyer Examines the Bible, he challenges his fellow lawyers by every acid test known to the law to examine the case for the Bible, just as they would any important matter submitted to their professional attention by a client. That's what he's telling his, his, uh, his students, to study the Bible in that regard, in that light, with respect to evidence. Do you ever notice something? Do you know that Christianity is the only faith system in the world that is solidly built on evidence? Do you also know that Christianity is the only one in the world which has demanded evidence? They don't demand evidence for Buddhism. They don't demand evidence for Hinduism. They don't demand the evidence for Zoroastrianism or anything else, but they demand it for Christianity. It's the only one. It's really interesting. It's founded on evidence. He further argues that the resurrection is not only so established that the greatest lawyers have declared it to be the best proved fact of all history, but it is so supported that it is difficult to conceive of any method or line of proof that it lacks which would make it more certain. And that even among lawyers, he who does not accept wholeheartedly the evangelical conservative belief in Christ and the scriptures has never read, has forgotten, or never been able to weigh and certainly is utterly unable to refute the irresistible force of the cumulative evidence upon which such faith rests. Matter of fact, if we were to test Christianity according to the laws that most people try and refute Christianity, most of history you'd have to wipe out. Because basically, unless you've got video footage of it, it never really happened. There was a guy that wrote a fantastic piece, and he wrote it on Napoleon Bonaparte, while... Napoleon was alive and he applied those very ways, those very methods that certain people would refute Christianity and he applied those same methods to Napoleon Bonaparte who was alive at the time, right? And according to that application when he applied it, Napoleon Bonaparte never never existed. And it's a fantastic writing, really brilliant how he put it forward. But Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God. With power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. In closing, I'll tell you a story. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. 
And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also should come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto them, unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them let, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, although one rose from the dead. Are you persuaded? All that has gone before leaves you now with one choice and one choice alone. Will you abandon your sin and selfish life and follow Christ? And follow him completely to life eternal and tell others of this great hope? Or would you keep your sin and self-focused life until death to the benefit of no one? Not only do you have the prophets you are accountable to hear, but one has also risen from the dead. God's given you both. The word of God that tells you the truth, all the prophets, and you've also got one that's risen from the dead. How are you going to respond? Let's pray. Father, I just ask you, dear Lord, that um, you would be with the people that are here. That as we continue to leave and lead our own self-focused lives, Father, I pray that somewhere we would realise the truth of who you are and that a choice would be made to follow you. Because ultimately, dear Lord, we understand that a choice needs to be made. And I just pray, dear Lord, that you would work in all our hearts, that we would follow you unreservedly, that we would recognise that you are indeed risen from the dead, and that we have a joy to look forward to, that we will also rise, that we also will have and receive resurrected bodies, that we will have that wonderful hope. I pray, dear God, that as you continue to work within our lives, please, dear Lord, that those that are here would make that decision to follow you and follow you perfectly. In trust, dear Father, in every way, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.